Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our exploration of Mockingjay, reading chapter 15. Brittany, could you start us off with a recap? Gale wants everyone in the nut dead, but with pushback from Katniss and others, it is decided that they will use avalanches to debilitate the nut, but will leave a tunnel open for survivors to get out. As Katniss watches the nut be destroyed, she thinks about the day her father died in the mines of District 12 and is horrified at the deaths so many will face in the nut. Haymitch asks Katniss to make a speech to those still fighting against the rebels in District 2 so that they'll surrender, but she's cut off when a train of survivors escapes the nut. A wounded man points a gun at Katniss and asks her for one reason not to kill her. She says she can't give him one because this is the cycle the capital created that pits districts against one another. She makes a plea for everyone to join in the fight to bring the capital down, and then is shot on camera. Whoopsies. <laughs> Don't worry, she's not dead, as y'all would assume. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk more about this chapter, starting with our striking moments. So what do you want to bring up? One is that I had forgotten that it took hours for survivors to get out of the nut. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about accidents and natural disasters and school shootings and things where you don't know if your loved ones are alive or not. And thinking about anyone else that wasn't in the nut, but loved ones were in the nut, you know, agonizing hours, waiting, hoping, despairing. And obviously for the people who are actually in the nut, like hours of trying to get out and being injured or having toxic fumes having all of these things seeing some of your co-workers probably die you know mm-hmm. um, yeah when things like this happen it's not just like this automatic immediate effect but yeah it can be really drawn out yeah i was also thinking about katniss's empathy here in imagining what was happening in the nut similar to when you brought it up earlier with her imagining prim during the bombings in district 13 she's just going to such an extent to imagine what's actually happening and it's just really impressive and it's really i mean (laughs) it's exactly what militaries do not want their soldiers to do Mm -hmm. You know, they want you to think of the enemy as the enemy, this dehumanized, monolithic group. And because you think of them that way, you can justify killing them, which is kind of how Gale is thinking about them. But for Katniss, she isn't doing that. She is thinking about what they are actually going through. Mm Mm-hmm. I was just kind of thinking about it. There's a quote from the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7 that I just really love when this prosecutor is asking Eddie Redmayne's character who didn't enlist for the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And he just responds something like, no, I did not volunteer to kill Vietnamese people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Tom Hayden, who the character is based on, actually said that. I I don't know. Uh, But the point still stands. Like, 
how you phrase things matters because you're saying oh you didn't enlist to go serve your country to fight for our freedoms which really is just fight for capitalism yeah but like the reality is no i didn't sign up to go kill vietnamese people Mm -hmm. like that's that's what it is and i feel like in katniss's imaginings she would be much more on that side of like no I'm not signing up to, or as she phrases it, kill any more of the capital slaves, yeah. you know. And I just think it's really interesting because for Gail to be such a rebel in some ways, it's just fascinating that he falls so easily into the simplistic military mindset mm. because he rebels against the oppression without rebelling against some of the thought processes that undergird the oppression Mm -hmm. where you you know you think that your group is more important or more valuable or more deserving than others and you learn nothing about the context of the people who you view as having shortcomings or you know whatever it is and And in this case being marked for death for it mm -hmm. yeah yeah, Katniss doesn't do that. You know, she understands the complexities of her involvement in an unjust system. Yeah. And therefore doesn't think that she's just more deserving of life than this District 2 person in front of her who's pointing a gun at her. Mm-hmm. Even despite her being, you know, if, if we're going to look at moral right and wrong, she's on the the better side here. Right. But she still, because of her understanding of how she's been involved in the Hunger Games exactly. and what that means and that she killed Cato to put him out of his misery, but still, she killed him. Mm-hmm. And she just doesn't look at it simplistically like that and so she doesn't just assume that she's more deserving of of life in that scenario exactly she made hard decisions for her own survival within a system that required violence between district people and she sees that those in District 2 are doing something similar now and that doesn't necessarily mean that she has to agree with those choices but it does absolutely give her empathy for it. Mm-hmm. And she still is able to see that even if they were partially responsible for 90% of her home being destroyed and the people there, she still sees them as a victim of the system that the capital set up, mm-hmm. which is accurate. And yet it seems like for Gail... He doesn't want to see any of the nuance because Darius was a peacekeeper. He was probably from District 2 since most of the peacekeepers come from there. And he probably, if he knew that he was turned into an Avox, he would have probably been furious about it, Mm -hmm. right? And Darius stepped in during the whipping, Mm -hmm. his own whipping, you know? And that's why he was turned into an Avox. And he was a peacekeeper. He was somebody who was enforcing the capital's will. Mm -hmm. And maybe he signed up to do that. 
like Katniss said, we don't know what caused people to be working there, which kind of makes me feel like, oh, a Samwise Gamgee moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, I was thinking a lot about that quote a lot this chapter. Yes, if if you aren't familiar. What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, they gave this line to Faramir in the movies, That's but true. in the book, it was Sam who, when one of the people who was fighting on the side of Sauron, he saw their dead body. He was, yeah, wondering about this. Like, what led this person to be here? Where there lies? What what compelled him to go so far away from home? Yeah, and so I, I think Katniss very much understands that, too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, after having brought it up a few times, I definitely notice the imagination here as well. Totally, yeah. I mean, um, I might not have as much, but since you brought it up in that other episode, I was like, oh, yeah. Well, that's one of the great things about this exercise is that there's lots of things now that I think that we both notice in different ways because we've already had these in-depth discussions. Totally, yeah. Uh, one, a couple of new things I saw, though, about this example was how, you know, her act of imagining is really great at building character. It helps us know not only how imaginative and empathetic she is, but also it reminds us of her relationship with her father and what that trauma was like for her to lose her father and how she's clearly spent a long time imagining what his death was like. Mm -hmm. um, but I also realized how it is a really useful narrative tool for Collins because when we only have one POV character, that imagination lets us picture what's happening in the nut without having to actually shift the narration mm -hmm. um, and shift the, the perspective. So. Yeah, I mean, imagine if the POV character was Ron Weasley. We just wouldn't <laughs> exactly. find out anything. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. So, yeah, I think that it's it's not only very compelling uh, and really you know interesting element of Catherine. Katniss's character, but also fascinating as a narrative device. Yeah. What are you? What are your striking moments? Yeah, I did have one small one, which is just when she describes how the avalanche makes the mountainside look like liquid. Mm. And I've heard the same kind of description used for, for really powerful earthquakes. Mm -hmm. And imagining those things, it's something that I've, I've never been able to see, but imagining that is the closest I've come to, like, feeling vertigo. Uh, mm. To feeling, like, an unsteadiness that I can't control is, like, when I really try to kind of picture that in my head. And this is a really evocative passage that kind of... I, I had to stop myself from going too far down it because I started feeling just a little, like, unsteady already just reading mm. and imagining that. Um, so, yeah, that was just a really, uh, I think, an interesting description that I didn't remember, but was more affecting, you know, with this slower read-through, for mm. sure. That's fascinating. But the the other striking moment that I had is, is kind of more of a collection of moments in that it kind of struck me at one point how this chapter in two, which Katniss left to go to to get as far away from PETA as possible, is also revolving so much around the absence of PETA, mm -hmm. around the loss of PETA. She thinks about how he would be able to explain why Gail's plan is immoral better than she ever could, mm -hmm. and which is that he was there 
to make that argument. And she uses his words to sum up her own speech, that she doesn't want to be a player in the games anymore. And I think that it's really powerful for her to not only refer back to that moment, a moment that no one else understands the reference for, he would be the only one, but for her to do so in a what she's envisioning as a kind of dying moment, because her narration states that she hopes for his forgiveness when she dies mm-hmm. at that moment. And so at least in that, you know, thought, she is certain she's going to die. Yeah. And her last thought is she hopes that she's earned Peta's forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that's, you know, really illustrative of their relationship and of how meaningful Peta has been to her in how she understands herself and how she's gained agency and how she can be a rebel, how she can be someone who not only rebels against the capital, but rebels against the idea of civil Not war. rebels, but rebels? No, she rebels. <laughs> she rebels, like Barney Rebel. Um, <sighs> she rebels against the capital, but she's also rebelling against the idea of civil war, the idea of killing other people who are oppressed mm-hmm. and using her power in that way. So what she's doing here is radical and a huge departure even from what the majority of the rebels would do. And I think that that is so, at its core, tied to her experiences with PETA and what PETA's helped her to understand. So yeah, I just, I thought it was really interesting these last couple of chapters where last chapter she was talking a lot about how she was grieving PETA in a way. And now... She is, you know, if, if you talk about like the stages of grief, right, there might be more of an acceptance in this chapter. And uh, one of the, the creator of the, the stages of grief originally, he later on came back and he added another stage, which was meaning making. Mm-hmm. And that I think is kind of what Katniss is doing here as well. She's she's expressing gratitude towards PETA and meaning of their time together and the actions they've taken and the ideas that he's shared with her. So yeah, I just thought that was a really powerful kind of undercurrent in this chapter that PETA doesn't make an appearance in. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Also, I think it shows her level of guilt mm-hmm. because I was like, girl, you don't need... like." He doesn't need to forgive you for anything. Like, in this, <laughs> you took down the Capitol, and you hadn't even agreed, you, you hadn't promised him to his face that you were going to save him, you know? <laughs> and that's not even what he wanted. <laughs> but she still feels responsible for his capture and torture. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm like, you did the most amazing action you could have done in in that moment exactly and i don't know if Peter would have wanted you to do anything different if he understood the entirety of the circumstances Mm -hmm. but yeah you're absolutely right her perspective on it yeah is absolutely guilty about those decisions but let's head into our next segment this is from another point of view where we think about the events in this chapter from other perspectives than katniss's 
So what perspective did you want to discuss? I was thinking about Lime's perspective mm. because <laughs> Gail is a little butt. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, well, y'all are so much cozier with the capital here in District 2. And Yannis is thinking that Lime looks like she wants to shoot him <laughs> or at least punch him. <laughs> so, yeah, I was just thinking about how frustrating it would be to have this little boy from district 12 who has no experience like just arrived mm-hmm. he wasn't even there for the two weeks right like just arrived and has no experience in district two to be saying these things and wanting her people to die mm-hmm and judging them for the choices that they've made. Not that he shouldn't, but she's there fighting on the same side as him. She's there fighting against the Capitol, fighting her own people Mm -hmm. against the Capitol. Yet he has the gall to say this to her. And she's a victor. We don't know what she was put through and we know that she experienced horrors at the very least even if she wasn't exploited in the ways that someone like Finnick was or her family or loved ones weren't killed in the way that Johanna's were she still had to go to the games every year she still had to mentor people who would die Mm -hmm. yeah I just I was just imagining how angry she would be Absolutely. That this little kid does not know anything about her life or the realities of what it's like to be in District 2. Yeah, and who knows? I'm sure a lot of them are forced to do different things that they don't want to do. And it just feels like he's assuming they're all a Cato or something. Mm-hmm. And even at the end, Cato should never have had to die. Yeah. And... We don't know how she got into the games. We don't know if she volunteered. Like, she's middle-aged, so maybe that practice wasn't even done yet, you know? Or even volunteering, I mean, like our conclusions from book one, mm-hmm. how we talked about volunteering could even be a, a noble thing. Mm-hmm. And Katniss volunteered. And, you know, he likes Katniss, but you could say, oh, well, she was playing this game. She involved herself in this process. She killed people to to get out of the games, yeah. you know, but he's not judging Katniss for those actions. But he is judging every single person he's never met, doesn't know anything about them for working in the nut when you still know that this is the industry of this district and the capital would not allow it to be anything other than this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was just thinking about her frustration and like exhaustion after doing this for so long and how emotionally exhausting it must be for their district to be so divided on this. Mm-hmm. And if somebody came in to district 12 if it hadn't been destroyed and some of the people were not wanting to rebel and then others were then do you just kill all the people who weren't you know it would gail be in favor of that if 
that were the circumstances, you know, he probably would be a little more nuanced because he's seen these people. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just thinking about her exasperation, her having to deal with being suspected. You know, like he said, we we could never trust any of them again. And her probably feeling like, yeah, you probably don't even trust me. Probably almost no one from the districts, other districts, would maybe trust her, you Mm -hmm. know? And she's giving this her all and then having to watch the nut fall and the grief that would be there but then not feeling like you can even show that or else you'll be suspect even more you know yeah or questioned by your troops or Mm -hmm. you know she's also a woman in charge of military leadership who's Mm middle-aged and we know that people take middle-aged women really seriously (laughs) yeah so yeah i think that that's a a really powerful perspective Oh, Gail. Always coming in here with your opinions. He sure is, which is uh, actually why I chose him as my POV. Oh, okay. Which was honestly a pretty uncomfortable process Mm. of trying to kind of enter his point of view because, for one, you know, I just morally and logically disagree with him here, but also because in... Going through that, I did find some ways that I can relate to at least the ways that he's interacting with people here in ways that, yeah, wasn't the greatest to feel. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's a powerful part of this process. So I want to talk about him and in particular about how defensive he is when he is putting his plan out there. Mm -hmm. Because he is not listening to what everyone's saying. He's not having a conversation. He came in with his decision made. He has an agenda. He has an agenda and he is ready to push back on anyone who even questions it, right? Mm -hmm. Beatty's the first person to say anything. The person who he's been making all of these quasi-moral traps with. And there's no quasi about it. (laughs) Uh, And he even responds to Beatty's neutral statement defensively, Mm -hmm. showing, yeah, how he is, I think when he's come up with this, he's expected that pushback. Or he expected everyone to just be on board and they're not. It could be, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way. I really thought about it as he was ready to respond to any of the questions with all of these kind of prepared, not really thought through answers. Hmm. Because... He is just striking out at anyone who would question him, not based off of what they're actually questioning or what their points are, but just based off of these basic premises that he's trying to, these emotional premises that he's trying to base his decision off of, that they deserve this. And there's nothing you can do to change my mind or to to nuance that. When people mention that their own spies and the people who are working alongside them would die as well. He's like, well, I would just choose to die if that was me in that position. And Katniss believes him there, but I don't. I don't (laughs) think that he would just readily throw his life away if that was the case, especially not without at least wanting a discussion of other other choices, other options. Like, sure, Gale can be fiery and Gale can be... And yeah, I think that he would 
sacrifice his life, like he did, like he was willing to do for Peta, right? He he's shown that he is willing to put his life on the line, but he's not going to do so wastefully. So yeah, I I kind of saw him as really being in this kind of defensive posture, like coming in ready to to, to strike back at anyone who questions him. Um, which yeah, I think in in some of my least considerate and most self-involved moments I've can I've certainly done of just expecting questions or responses and you know in my own head building up answers that aren't actually taking those questions um and and really considering them mm. yeah yeah it's so interesting because I mean he's furious with the capital we've known this since ever mm-hmm. but I wonder how much his agenda here is revenge-based mm-hmm. because bombers from District 2 destroyed his home. Yeah. But, like, war shouldn't ever happen. But when it does happen, people should not be making military decisions based off of revenge. Mm-hmm. Creates that circle that Katniss mentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the most gracious reading of Gale here might be one in which his conscience is telling him that these things are wrong and he's having this kind of internal grappling with it and that's part of why he's so defensive is because he's trying to quiet that even within himself Mm. um but he knows that he's going to have to strike out at any questions because it's the only way to overcome the questions that he even has himself yeah, and I wonder also if if there could be a reading of this is coming from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. The fact that he said it's not like we could ever trust any of them again anyway. Maybe he is afraid that even if they win, maybe District 2 will take over and mm-hmm. kind of be the new capital or people who are from the capital who aren't executed would be in alliance with these people from District 2 and set up a horrible system yet again. So maybe it's like anything that could be even a sliver of doubt for anyone's loyalties or intentions just needs to be stamped out so that this never happens again. Yeah. Or maybe just acting out because he's sore that Katniss is a whole independent person who doesn't just love him unconditionally like he wants. Yeah. Although, I would say, if if you're reading him as an indigenous kid, mm. I would still say it's immoral, but I would also be like, you know, if all of the indigenous people were like, yeah, we should kill everyone else and take our country back, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> There's some justification I, there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not completely not on board. Says <laughs> <laughs> the pacifist. Yeah, that's a really good point, though. It's just like, look at how these people have ruined everything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's look at how we've ruined everything <laughs> and move into our touch points where we relate what we're seeing in the story to our own society. What are your touch points this week? So I was thinking about the mountain that is the nut being 
destroyed. Mm-hmm. Because when you think of the nut and you think of, oh, where all of these weapons and hovercrafts and stuff are being produced, you think about things in a much more military terms. But thinking about it as an actual mountain, I was thinking about the ecological mm-hmm. effects. First, there was mining. Mm-hmm. And then there was the actual building of the nut, which would have further impact. And now it's decimated. And so the ecological disruption and destruction i was you know just looking at but i don't think it's very common for people to bomb mountains <laughs> so it was actually fascinating to see about the disruption and destruction of mountains caused by tourism mm. because it's a much less intense you know thing but this is what happens from people going on vacations or skiing or things that are like leisure activities, not even war yeah. uh, or industry. So erosion happens, deforestation, topsoil loss, species disruption and loss of habitat, pollution runoffs, contaminating groundwater and lakes, and even airborne pollutants can accumulate on the needles of conifers, weakening them to the point where they succumb to insects and parasite attacks. Hmm. And so it's just like all of that can happen just from human tourism there. Uh, and so I was just imagining how much destruction this plan caused to District 2. Yeah, disrupted a whole ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like this and Mulan just completely destroying mountainous <laughs> ecosystems. I mean, as part of military exercises. <laughs> granted, there was already snow on the mountains, so <laughs> it was probably a little bit different with an avalanche because that's a more natural thing rather than dirt slides Mm -hmm. which is kind of different but yes neither is excellent no no no. (laughs) so another touch point i was kind of thinking about was katniss drawing so many parallels to what she's seeing happen with the nut and the mining accident with her father Mm -hmm. i was just thinking about miners and especially after the you had mentioned Chinese railroad workers Mm. tunneling and having all of these really dangerous jobs. But then I was also thinking about, you know, because that was more in the context of District 2, but in District 12, since we were reading Katniss and Gail and a lot of people in the seam as being indigenous, Mm. about indigenous history with mining, one of the things that I came across was Navajo uranium miners. So... About two decades before the uranium boom in the southwestern U.S. happened, Mm -hmm. a correlation between uranium and cancer had been documented. The U.S. did not tell the Navajo workers about this or give them accurate, helpful information that would have been important to know. Yeah. And a lot of the information, you know, that had been published obviously was only published in English that they could have possibly have gotten their hands on. And a lot of them did not read English. 
and some of them didn't even speak English. And so the Navajo reservation was situated on one corner of the uranium mining belts. And since there were not really any other job opportunities, many Navajo men went to work in the mines, of course run by white men that didn't care if they got cancer. Mm-hmm. About 10 years into the mining, the first cases of lung cancer began. And even now, like, there's an estimated 1,000 abandoned uranium mine shafts on Navajo land uh, that just nothing's being done with. I'm sure they're not safe. So, yeah, I was just thinking about how Katniss, because of her experience or adjacent experience with these mines and her community's experience with these mines, she's horrified about what's happening Mm -hmm. in the nut and yeah how capitalism ruins everything yeah yeah it really does uh yeah that's fascinating i didn't know that history but when you were talking about indigenous people and mining i was reminded of one of the first laws that the state of california passed after it retained statehood in 1850 was a law that was meant to kind of regulate where indigenous people could live and work because of the gold rush. Mm-hmm. And it legalized the displacement and genocide of many indigenous people, um, yeah. thousands and thousands of indigenous people who were killed, driven off their lands, displaced for the gold rush and other kinds of new American economic systems. This law was titled The Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. Oh, of course it was. But it really, uh, it legalized essentially the forced labor of indigenous people, the the enslavement of indigenous people, along with that displacement and genocide. So, um, you know, one of the first things California did, and California only became a state because of the gold rush, very much tied into that element. So, yeah, thinking about an indigenous community built around coal mining, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, you know, with the seam being the possible indigenous community is, yeah, really interesting in that context. Mm. I was also thinking about the tension between different factions that are all like kind of butting heads here in District 2 currently. Mm -hmm. So there are the peacekeepers who... I don't know if the ones here in District 2 are from District 2. It sounded like they were from the Capitol. It sounded like Capitol people were here. And so there would be the Capitol people. There would be the nut workers. There would be the people who are not working in the nut necessarily, but are still on the side of the Mm Capitol. And then there are the rebels who are from District 2 who are fighting against the capital people there as well as their own people from district two who are on the other side of this war and then now there are other people coming in from district 13 and other districts like 12 and bd from three and and so on yeah and so you have all of these people (laughs) coming together and it was just kind of think making me think about a little bit of indonesian history with imperial powers there the dutch were there for so long Mm -hmm. and then 
during World War II, the Japanese come in and are like, yeah, we can help you throw off the Dutch. We're also colonizers and we'll do terrible things to you. And then you have other European and Australian militaries coming in to help the Dutch <laughs> regain control. And then you have the actual Indonesian people. And then also people who are like Chinese Indonesian and, mm. you know, had, had immigrated at, at some point over. And so you have like all of these people clashing and having different opinions of what should be done and which sides that they should join and it causing a lot a lot a lot of tension among indonesians mm -hmm. themselves depending on what sides they were fighting on so after world war ii ended and the japanese left after the dutch finally like they they announced their independence and the dutch finally begrudgingly years later is like okay i guess we'll leave you know there, there were a lot of indonesians that also left too mm -hmm. because of potential reprisals if they had worked with the dutch closely or fought with the dutch um there's currently 1.7 million people with Indonesian ancestry in the Netherlands. Interesting. Actually, one of the reasons I was thinking of this is because one of my exes, mother was Indonesian Dutch. Mm. And that's when I first learned about some of this history. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about like how complicated these things can become when you have imperial powers coming in and messing with everything yeah and forever altering society in a way that never would have happened if they had just stayed away and i feel like that's the capital here just destroying the relationships between people in district two and between district two and other places yeah absolutely that's a really interesting parallel but what about you what do you have as your touch points one we kind of discussed a little bit already, which is Katniss's empathy. Mm -hmm. And this chapter in particular made me stop and think about empathy and how empathy is different from sympathy. Because Katniss here is, uh, she, she talks about how maybe her own history makes her, she says, too sensitive. In this case, really too empathetic to the people in the nut. You know, she questions her own decision making when faced with Gail's position. I was about to say, can you ever be too empathetic? And then I was like, yes. For people who are like, oh, I read Songbirds and Snakes, and now I feel so bad for Snow. I'm like, <laughs> what? How did this even happen? <laughs> but some of the, the ways that empathy versus sympathy have been talked about, in particular by mental health professionals and wellness guides and things like that, is that empathy helps you to build community. Empathy is about experiencing the emotions or the experiences of other people alongside them, whether because you have experienced that in the past or because you are actually so connected with them that you are able to experience that alongside them in a way. Whereas sympathy is more about separation. Sympathy often comes when you pity someone or when you're glad that you're not actually feeling what they are feeling at the time. It's a way of kind of separating yourself emotionally from what they're experiencing, even though it can be done in a compassionate way, that separation is still pretty intrinsic to it. And I think that 
one of the reasons Katniss is such a powerful symbol, such a heroic figure in this rebellion, is because she is empathetic. Is because she not only has experienced so much of what the other districts have experienced, she's experienced what other tributes and victors have experienced, but she also responds to her own experiences in a way that builds community with those around her, with the people in District 2, even, who she is actually fighting against at the moment, because they're both slaves of the capital. In fact, outside the capital itself, the capital citizens, the people she finds it hardest to empathize with are those in District 13, because they do have such a different experience. But even them, she thinks about what living in that society would be like and how that might create the kind of cultures and ideas they have. And so I think that Katniss as a Mockingjay is so powerful because she is this massively empathetic person. And when she is guided by that empathy and by her courage is when she touches people and when she, she kind of has that. So, you know, I, I don't think Gail in this chapter is even being sympathetic. So it's not <laughs> like that's a division here. But I do think that Katniss is a special character because she is empathetic. In a similar way as we see Frodo and Harry Potter and some of these other amazing characters being empathetic in a way that is not common, uh, particularly in our society, where sympathy can be much more common, particularly when we think about the oppression of others, especially if we are the ones oppressing them. Mm -hmm. um, but that is about separating ourselves from them, not about being in community with them. Mm. That's really fascinating. Yeah, now I kind of want to think about if you look at these protagonists or heroes of all sorts of series, yeah, I kind of want to see if the actually good ones are the ones that are empathetic, you know? Mm. Yeah, that I think would be a great point of why... I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them why... No, it had to be her. It couldn't have been PETA because I don't think he has that same level of empathy as she mm. does, like... I think that he definitely cares. I think he definitely has compassion. Absolutely. But in the end, he wanted her to be the one that lives. He does things to protect her or the people he loves. But Katniss is able to bring people together, even as she's trying to keep them distant from herself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she made that first alliance with Rue. You know, she, yeah. she risked her life to try to save Rue, and I think it's that of her being able to connect to other people that makes her be the one that can connect the districts for this cause. Yeah. Because even if she's not stating it that way, although I think towards the end of her speech here, she is. She's saying that we all have to do this together, and mm -hmm. we're all slaves to the capital. Yeah, I think that that's what reaches people. It's not just, like, the logic of, yes, this is an oppressive system, so it needs to be brought down. It's also, it needs to be brought down because it's oppressing people. Mm -hmm. And those people matter, even if some of those people oppressed me. Yeah. Katniss. Katniss. 
Impressive 17-year-old. Right? Um, I did have one other more brief touch point with Katniss is noticing the beauty and strength of the Justice Building mm-hmm. in District 2. And this is just another example. She's admiring the marble there, and it's another example of how stone and earth can be more powerful than humans. It can be deadly to humans um, as the nuts being being destroyed. But it also made me think about how we put so many resources into building these magnificent halls of justice, be they courthouses or civic buildings or what have you. And, you know, there's a reason why they're often the big monumental structures in our cities, in our communities. Uh, A really great example of this is L.A. City Hall. L.A. City Mm -hmm. Hall was built in 1928. When it was built, it towered over every other building in the city. And that was intentional because since 1904, L.A. had a law that said that you couldn't build any buildings above 150 feet tall in in the city of Los Angeles. L.A. had plenty of room. It was a newer city. It was obsessed with car culture. And so it became like the center of urban sprawl. They didn't want it to have this kind of urban, dense type of city planning that places like New York and Boston had. And so they wanted to build out. So they had this law that said couldn't build above 150 feet. But then city council was like, we need to build a new city hall, but we want it to be monumental. Mm-hmm. And so they passed a law that said that for one day, buildings could be permitted at higher than 150 feet. <laughs> And when that day came around, L.A. City Hall was the only building that got its permits. <laughs> and so it was able to be built at 424 feet. <laughs> Talk about building in a loophole. Right? <laughs> oh Absolutely. <laughs> so they, you know, so for until the 1950s when that law was repealed, that was by far the tallest building in the city. So, you know, it just is, I think, a, a grand reminder of how... <laughs> intentional choices and decisions go into creating the effect of opulence and its ties to our civic and social structures, Mm. uh, ties to ideas of quote-unquote justice or Mm. ideas of law, order, and things like that, that uh, are why those buildings do tend to have those kinds of histories. Mm -hmm. And having an imposing presence. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, but let's head into our wonderments, the questions that we have from this chapter. So what's on your mind? So one that I have is, what has the capital been doing on their side for the war? Mm. What are their strategies? Because all of the other districts besides two were taken by the district's people. Mm -hmm. And so they only had two left. Like, were they still trying to gain some of the other territories back? Like, what was going on? Because if they're just sitting around being like, well, they're never going to crack this nut, you know, like, that's not a good strategy (laughs) if you want to (laughs) win. Particularly when they just start letting these hovercrafts fly up. It's like, uh, they usually can't hurt us, so they're not going to hurt us now. We don't have to worry about them. You're at war. Yeah, you always have to worry about them. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that has bombs attached, you should be worried about. (laughs) So yeah, I'm just wondering what is going on. But like also, maybe the capital's not good at war. Mm -hmm. Like they haven't been at war for over 75 years. 
and they barely even won that one. Mm-hmm. So they, they have policing ideas down. They have different oppressive systems, but when it actually comes to war, I don't know, do they just have their book theories, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I just, I'm just wondering what they're doing. Or are they just still sipping on their cocktails for the, <laughs> the upper tier that still has access? You know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, could be. I'm also wondering about Gale fighting with other people. Mm. Since other districts have been taken, are some of them now fighting in District 2? Yeah, have people come in from surrounding districts? You know, Katniss hasn't been going to any of her training because (laughs) she's Katniss and it's like, no. But Gale has been. And so I'm also kind of wondering, has he turned in his bow and arrows for a machine gun? Mm. Which I kind of wish we found out. Like, I think he, he does have his bow at a future time in this book, but... It would just be really interesting, like, symbolically. Yeah, I was thinking about the same thing. Yeah, this, like, militarization and leaving some of his culture and history and skill set behind to assimilate to a different imperial power, potentially. And his connection to Katniss, mm. right? It, it highlights how he is moving in a different direction. He is, yeah becoming more militaristic he is wanting to go and kill people allied with the capital rather than stick around with Katniss and make sure that she's safe the way Mm -hmm. that he would have been near the beginning of this book he is willing to separate with her and fight with others rather than be around her when this is all happening and it's also parting from sustenance like that's why he learned how to shoot with the bow and arrow Mm. was for food and nobody is hunting for food they're actually going to eat with a machine gun, you know? And yeah. so it goes just into the only purpose of a machine gun is to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. And a bow and arrow is one person, well, hopefully not a person, but one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. With the hope of it would only be used for if you absolutely need that for sustenance. Yeah, that is really fascinating. What about you? What are your wonderments? I was wondering what the conversation that BD was having about the population numbers, how that conversation went, and what BD's population numbers are uh, that has him concerned enough that he thinks it warrants a conversation, that they need to start prioritizing keeping people alive in a war. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the few times that we really are reminded that this is a dystopian post-apocalyptic type of tale that yeah. the world is not just full of people and resources but that things are very limited based off of the catastrophes that people brought about in this world yeah absolutely so yeah i you know i think it makes sense why collins would not include that conversation because Arguably stronger world world building is less exact in these kinds of things. Not there are exactly this many people in the world in these different mm-hmm. locations, but I'm still interested in what they, that would be. Yeah, there we know that District 12 was the smallest and poorest district, mm-hmm. but still they only had 
8,000 people-ish. And 90% of them are gone. Yep. And so, yeah, it's it's a much less densely populated United States. It does show not only has war and climate change just devastated the United States, which eventually will happen, uh, but also how much a toll this war has taken as well. I mean, as wars always do, but... The capital has a lot fewer people than the districts have, and the districts are going to take the heaviest casualties, as is always the case, you know. You look at us in, in Vietnam and things like that, like, the numbers are just so skewed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's head into our intentions. What we're taking away with us after this reading and discussion. What is your intention this week? So I was kind of thinking about that intense, empathetic visualization that Katniss does. Mm -hmm. And I think that's some of what we're doing with our From Another Point of View section. But I would like to try imagining a bit more, whether, whether it's in that section or just as I'm reading in general, even other books and things like that, like trying to imagine more of the sensory perceptions Mm. because I think that that is very striking in her visualizations. You know, the smell of burning or the feeling in the pit of a stomach or, you know, things like that that are a little more visceral. Yeah. I think it would also probably be very good to try to do that the next time I read Songbirds and Snakes because obviously... Snow isn't doing this empathetic... No, we've got to do it for him. <laughs> empathetic imagination, yeah. So, yeah, it, w- it would be interesting to do that since it would be missing since Katniss isn't the POV. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But what about you? What is your intention? Well, after seeing those similarities I can have with Gale in this <laughs> chapter... Uh, I think that I can't have any intention other than to try to be less like Gale <laughs> and to, to kind of challenge myself to use his, him as an example of what I don't want to be so that I can be better at being open and not defensive at times when people challenge me. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I think that that is me a lot, but I think it, it's something that can occur. So yeah, just trying to, to not be Gale. hashtag don't be (laughs) gale okay well that is going to wrap up this week's discussion so what's happening next time on the hunger games so next week we are going to be reading chapter 16 where finnick and friends have an unexpected party oh that sounds nice hooray (laughs) well thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of geek between the lines You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon to help support the show and to get you access to all sorts of fun bonus content. We also want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!